Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Man in the Mirror, a number one worldwide pop hit recorded by Michael Jackson and co-written by Glenn Ballard and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Saida Garrett. The Southern California native launched her career with a group called Plush in the early 1980s before joining Deco, which was assembled by her mentor, legendary producer Quincy Jones. It was Jones who played Man in the Mirror for Michael Jackson. The King of Pop fell in love with the song and the voice on the demo tape. In addition to recording Man in the Mirror, Michael invited Saida to be his duet partner on I Just Can't Stop Loving You, which was released as the first single from the Bad album and hit number one on the Billboard pop chart. Saida would go on to co-write Keep the Faith on Jackson's Dangerous album and join him as a featured vocalist on the Dangerous World Tour. As a backing vocalist, Saida can be heard on recordings by Madonna, Sarah Vaughn, Barbara Streisand, Donna Summer, Natalie Cole, Santana, Jessica Simpson, and others. As a featured artist, she's scored hits such as the chart-topping R&B duet Don't Look Any Further with former Temptation Dennis Edwards and her solo top 20 R&B single K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Beyond her work with Michael Jackson, highlights from Saida's songwriting catalog include Sometimes, a top 20 R&B hit for the brand new Heavies, of which she was also a member, as well as five songs on Quincy Jones' multi-Grammy award-winning Back on the Block album. The long list of artists who've recorded Saida's songs includes Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald, Al Jarreau, Earth, Wind & Fire, The Pointer Sisters, Paula Abdul, Amy Grant, Bobby McFerrin, Barry White, Albie Shure, Elda Barge, James Ingram, Will I Am, and others. The Grammy-winning songwriter was also nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Original Song. The first, Love You, I Do, was performed by Jennifer Hudson in the film Dreamgirls. The second, Real in Rio, was from the animated film Rio and was co-written with Sergio Mendez. Well, today is a pretty great day in, in the songcraft world, not only because we're launching this awesome Saida Garrett interview, but... Because we are launching our Patreon page today. Yeah, so for those of you who are not familiar with Patreon, it's an opportunity for people to get involved in supporting creators, whether that be music creators, uh, visual artists, or podcasters like ourselves. And what it is, is um, you can be a monthly sponsor. You can you can pledge to, to help support what it is we do here. And kind of like public radio, um, you know, you can get in your car, you can turn it on, you can listen to public radio. It's free. It doesn't right. cost you anything. Right. But, you know, then they do those annoying pledge drives, you know, every uh, couple times a year, and then you switch over to the other public radio station sure. for a couple weeks. But <laughs> but then you feel guilty, and you know, hey, you know, I do listen to this stuff. So right. you can go on the website, you can call in, you can do whatever, and, and, and you can help support public radio with your dollars. Right. That's kind of the model that we're pursuing here at, at Songcraft. Yeah, or like take a penny, leave a penny <laughs> at, at the gas station. Yes, yes. You know, I've, I've often take a penny 
And then right. every now and then I go, you know, I'm going to leave a penny. Leave here. a penny. Why not? I'll be I'll be a good guy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the you know, we don't want to um, ever charge our listeners to right. have access to our content. But similar to public radio, if there are people who believe in our mission, they believe what we uh, believe in what we're doing, yeah. then we give them a chance now to sort of get involved. You know, we do have expenses that come along with mm-hmm. doing this show um, and you know, it, it, we, we thought it'd be a cool thing to, to let people who believe in it kind of become part of the team, so to speak, um, get on board with us in, in making this thing uh, a reality. So um, really, I think the, the best way to find out the most information is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash songcraftshow, yeah. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash songcraftshow. And there's a video of uh, me and Paul there, and we are... Uh, telling you all about how to get involved. And most importantly, uh, we do offer some cool perks, um, some yep. some goodies for yep. uh, for getting involved. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're going to have is an exclusive audio channel, which is going to have like some bloopers and some outtakes, some questions that maybe didn't make it into the final cut. And for our Patreon supporters, that's something you're going to be able to get into and hear. And, there, you know, we try to trim these things down to somewhere near an hour, but there, yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff that, that kind of ends up on the cutting room floor. So it'll be fun to hear that. Um, there's a chance to have a Google Hangout with us. There's a chance, you know, to, to maybe have a shout out on the show or even to help us like put a question together. And, and the great thing about this is we're really not talking about big sums of money. We're talking about the, the kind of money that's between your couch cushions, basically. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the, the lowest level is, is two bucks a month. Yeah. That comes out to a dollar an episode. Right. Um, and again... Anyone who enjoys Songcraft, we don't want to put a guilt trip on anybody. This show will continue to be offered for free for as long as we do it. But um, this is just a chance. If you really believe in it and you want to be a part of it, it's a chance to, to come a little bit deeper into the Songcraft yeah. inner circle. $2. The, the amount of money it would take to, to feed a family of eight at Taco Bell. That's, that's <laughs> all it takes <laughs> to, to be part of, of what we're doing here at Songcraft. But uh, enough about that. Let's uh, let's get into this great interview with Saida Garrett. Yeah, man. I mean, how cool was it to go over to Saida's house? I mean, I felt like we were walking into a photo shoot for Dwell magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and my eyes are still burning a bit from all the platinum on the walls. Oh, my gosh. She had the Michael Jackson wall that was incredible. We took a photo, actually, yeah. in front of it. We'll throw that up on uh, on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and all our other yeah. uh, social media hubs uh, because, you know, just to stand in front of that kind of Michael Jackson yeah. bling is, is pretty humbling. <laughs> but she was gracious, and she was funny, and, uh, and we had a great time talking to her so hopefully you'll have a great time listening to it yeah let's check it out Saida welcome to Songcraft thanks for having me yeah it's great to be here in your absolutely beautiful home on a beautiful day it's just uh, a real honor for us we are fans and Thank it's, you. it's it's neat for us to get a chance to do this um, now normally our our interviews are fairly chronological but I actually want to start with um, your most recent single called G-H-E-T-T-O, which yes. stands for Greatness Happens Even Though There's Oppression. Yes. And that's, a, that's a song that you uh, performed and wrote. It features uh, a verse with Common, which is really cool. Yeah. But the reason I ask about that is because the story of that song, I think, in a way, ties back to your own story and your own beginnings. So I'd like to kind of talk about that song as kind of a springboard to get us going into to how you first got into this industry and all that good stuff. Okay. Um I've been having the privilege of of touring all over the U.S. and uh, 
even in the other countries. And as I travel around and do interviews, I'm always asked uh, where I'm from. And when I mention that I'm from Compton and I have very humble beginnings, I'm like uh, my parents were divorced when my sister and I were five and six. Um, I graduated high school but didn't go to college, just went right to work after that. And statistically, I really was not supposed to be successful. Hmm. And because I have had some modicum of success, it it always brings the interviewer back to my humble beginnings. <laughs> and it does not compute. The two are not supposed to be con congruent. I'm, yeah. Like, I'm, it's, I'm not supposed to be as successful as I have been. Mm. And uh, if, I've, if they feel that way about me, then I know that people who live in uh, poor neighborhoods who have less opportunities to do great things and be better and learn more and uh, 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 open other avenues to uh, uh, different, different streams of income. They must feel that way even more so. Yes, and, and so I felt that I needed to say something to them to encourage them not to be uh, downtrodden about mm. their lot in life yeah. and l to let them know that where they started from mm. does not determine how they end up in life. Mm. So I, I just wanted them to know that, that just because they came from, you know, a, a broken home or have uh, drug issues or depressed or have other ailments that are physical or mental or emotional, it doesn't mean that that determines how you live this life. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like you're writing a song to your 15-year-old self. Or, exactly, or, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I never yeah. thought about it that way, but you're exactly right. Ghetto is a state of mind. Ghetto is a piece you find. did get into the business as a singer in your teenage years before you became a songwriter. Absolutely. Um, and I'd love to know how you first got that opportunity to sing professionally. I would just, I was always in a group, you know, from the time I was whatever teen, 13 to 12 to, you know, 20 something. I was always in a band or in a, you know, at one point I was in a 16 piece Latin disco band, y'all, and I was well. the lead singer. <laughs> um, I just auditioned for everything and I was just always motivated to, something had to pop, something had to happen. Mm. I never knew what it was gonna be yeah. or if it was gonna be, uh, but I assumed that it would be. Mm. And I just wanted to be ready yeah. when, it, when it did. Yeah. Um, your first real breakthrough as an artist was with a group called uh, Plush. Yes, oh my a, lord. self-titled album in 1982 on RCA Records. It hit the R&B chart with a song called Burn in Love, not to be confused with the, uh, the Elvis song of the same name. Um, but you know, even though you didn't write that one, um, you are credited as a co-writer on one song from that Plush album called Gonna Get Ya. Um, how did you first start actually getting into writing songs, making up songs as opposed to, to singing? Well... I used to write poems, and uh, when I auditioned, it was a, a cattle call for Quincy Jones. He was looking for 
a new version of the Fifth Dimension or Manhattan mm -hmm. Transfer. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was just auditioning singers of all types uh, and singing groups of all types. And uh, I went to these auditions and um, I, I just started singing for everyone, yeah. for anything. And when, when I won these auditions for Quincy Jones, it was over a period of nine months. And I just only wanted to, the artist part of the deal. But there were four, three other members of the group, three guys and myself, and they were established musicians and they you know, had written songs before and, and they could write a whole song that Quincy could own 100% of. Whereas <laughs> me, I would co-write everything. Yeah. So let's just say this contract said as a songwriter, I have to write 12 songs a year. Yeah. That Quincy owns 100% of the publishing on. Mm -hmm. uh, so if they had to write 12, that meant I had to write at least 24. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if there were three people in the room, then that was an even lesser percentage. <laughs> right, so right. I said, you know what? Nah, I don't really. Mm. No, I didn't want to find myself on the business end of a lawsuit with Quincy mm. Jones for not completing my contractual obligations. Yeah, yeah. So I said, no, I don't want that, but I do want the artist part. The guys were like, fine, great. So they took their contracts to Quincy <laughs> in a meeting and Quincy like shuffled the papers on his desk and did the equivalent of pushing the papers back towards them when, when he said, so where's Saida's contract? Oh, she didn't want the, uh, the publishing deal. She just wants the artist contract. Quincy said, you either all sign or nobody signs. Wow. Next thing I hear. <laughs> Saida, <laughs> bitch, you better sign this contract. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I immediately began the process of learning the craft of writing songs. Wow. Now, that is pretty remarkable that somebody had to learn to write songs because they got a publishing deal. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I know, right? It's <laughs> crazy. I was forced to do it, <laughs> and it was the best thing that I could have ever done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, during the nine months that I was uh, waiting to see if I was going to be in this group uh, for Quincy Jones, there were a lot of uh, songwriters and um, producers in the room because Quincy was writing, uh, was producing uh, Patty Austin's album. And everyone in, in L.A., every songwriter in L.A. was writing songs for uh, Patty Austin for Quincy Jones to produce on her album. Yeah. So there were a lot of people that I didn't know who they, you know, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil were there. Mm. Uh, Dennis Lambert and Franny Goldie were there. Yeah. I, I had no idea who they were. Wow. So uh, I started... While I was waiting to see if I was going to be in this group, I started singing everybody's demos. Yeah. Right? So, uh, Quincy would, every song that came in, it, it, I was on it. And yeah. so, it, that is how Quincy was reminded that I was in this group mm -hmm. of his. You know, he just yeah. kept hearing my voice over and over. So, um, like I said, over a period of nine months, and then this, this group, Deco, um, uh, was formed. But... Franny Goldie and Dennis Lambert were in the room, and I sang the demo uh, and produced the vocals, the final vocals for Night Shift for the Commodores. Wow. And Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil were in the room, and I sang the demo Through the Fire for Shaka Khan. Mm. Wow. And she sounds exactly like me, I must say. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, because, just because I was in the room, I was able to take advantage of a lot of different opportunities to learn uh, arranged, uh, song arrangement and, and uh, different musicalities of different producers. Yeah. And I just had a wealth 
mm. of 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 education in mm. in that in that uh, area. Right. I, I was just so yeah. even now talking about it, I, I just feel so lucky to yeah, have been yeah. in the right place at the right time. You said you didn't go to college, but that was. That, that was, was you truly an education, <laughs> truly a music education for real. I yeah. couldn't have paid for that. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you mentioned the group uh, Deco, which was the kind of the the spark that brought you to, to Quincy Jones, and you guys had uh, the single "Fresh Idea," which hit the R and B chart in 1983. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> According to songwriters. If you say so, Paul. I, you know, I don't know. That might be on one of those Quincy contracts. Somewhere. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but you know. Uh, I was just talking to Scott before, you know, Quincy Jones is one of those names that, that we're very familiar with, you know, from years of kind of being around music and listening to music. But every now and then I'll hear something about him that surprises me yet again. And I just got this Frank Sinatra box set recently. <laughs> and I'm looking through the credits and it's like 1962. Quincy conductor was Quincy in there, Jones. Man. And I'm in like, there. What? In there. In such a huge way as an arranger for like, and, and to this day he has, um, a pinky ring that Frank gave him Jeez. before he passed away. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Quincy Jones has been relevant or has had some relevance in the music business for six decades. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and for him to have experience and ability in so many different genres, that must be something that rubs off as well. Because, I mean, you're even talking about, you know, your experience in all these different genres of music and just trying to sing a bit of everything. And you kind of wrote a bit of everything and have written and are writing a bit of everything. I think it just came from, from that experience. Yeah. I mean, that's all I, I didn't know any different. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I knew to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was all about pleasing whatever producer, cause I wanted my demos to be heard. So it was all about me giving that songwriter, that producer exactly what they needed from yeah, me. Yeah. Well, after that group, uh, Deco broke up that, that Quincy had put together. Um, I understand that you, obviously continued to work with, with Quincy's company and, and you scored a real breakthrough under your own name when you and former temptation, Dennis Edwards hit number two on the billboard R and B chart, mm-hmm. uh, with don't look any further. That was in 1984. And you would go on to hit the R and B charts as a solo artist, a couple more times in the mid 1980s with songs such as, uh, do you want it right now? And every, uh, ever changing times. Um, these are songs that you were, had an opportunity to showcase your vocals, but, all of those examples are songs that were written by other people. So we know that you were kind of getting into the songwriting stuff at that point, but we're not quite seeing your original songs just yet. Not at what, all. What type of stuff were you writing in that era? Like how- Absolutely not very good stuff. <laughs> um, um, it, was, it was all a process, man. It was all about learning the craft and experimenting with different styles and learning to learning what your specific your specific thing is like yeah. what you do to differentiate your music from from any other songwriter right i don't know i'm still doing it i guess i'm just trying yeah. to uh, stay relevant yeah in an ever-changing ever uncertain business right music right yeah. right more uncertain i can't even than say the music business. It's, it's, it's not even the music business anymore it's, it's right. either music or business i don't, I don't, I don't know right, right right at the same time that you're you know building your solo career as as a vocalist and and starting to get into writing songs you're also continuing to work um you know you mentioned singing demos but then you're getting into doing a lot of background singing for yes. you know a, a variety of artists i mean yes. you know people like Madonna and I, I discovered that that's you 
singing back up on Papa Don't Preach and yes. La Isla Bonita yes. and, and True Blue and, you know, all these huge uh, Madonna hits. Now, you talked about sort of being around different writers and, and that sort of thing. But obviously, you know, working with with various artists singing backup vocals, you have a front row seat to a lot of different kinds of songs. Um, in, in what ways did working with other artists kind of as a background singer influence your own songwriting instincts? Uh, it would be difficult for that not to influence my own um, hmm. instincts. Um, I, I do feel like I had a, a front row seat to some pretty special um, recordings that you know will never be repeated again, that will never happen again. Yeah, so yeah. I just feel so blessed to have been in the the right place at the right time and Quincy was like in you know uh, in the heat of of his producing and there were artists clamoring for him to produce their records right one of which was Michael Jackson which is how I got to meet Michael right um and uh because I was signed to Quincy Jones uh, as a songwriter uh he had a meeting with his west coast writers I think there was like six or eight of us at the time and he said, we're looking for one more song. And we didn't know this was the bad album. He just said one more song to finish <laughs> out Michael's album, you know. So I took some copious notes at that time and then went to my then only demo singing friend, Glenn Ballard. And I said, you want to try and write a song for Michael Jackson? He's like, sure. It's like, what, is, what kind of song is Quincy looking for? I'm like, I don't know. He said, well, well you know, Quincy's suggestion was like, you know, it's mid-tempo or up-tempo or something happy or something energetic that we can all sing and blah, blah, blah. So I took those notes and I took it to Glenn and he stood up to turn on the keyboard to get some sounds. Yeah. Cut to two years prior to that day. Hmm. I'm in a writing session with my dear friend, John Beasley, amazing jazz uh, keyboard player, songwriter. Um, and we're writing, and I thought we were doing very well. I thought we were having a productive afternoon. The phone rings. And instead of letting the machine pick up the phone, he begins this very banal conversation. <laughs> and I'm like, go, I'm saying to myself, no, he didn't just say he's not doing nothing. No, he, you know, no, I'm flipping through my lyric book notes saying this is not happening. I, right. I, I just can't believe he's saying I'm not, I, I thought we were working, you know, all right. these things are going on in right, my right. head. Then I hear him saying, the man, what man? Oh, the man in the mirror. I wrote down man in the mirror. Wow. Hmm. Two years later, Matt Glenn's, he gets up to turn on the keyboard to get some sounds and he starts playing. Just to get some sounds yeah, yeah. from the kid. As he's playing that, I'm flipping through the same lyric book and the phrase, Man in the Mirror. Wow. I, every, I get goosebumps. <laughs> no, every I'm getting goosebumps I, just hearing you talk Every time I tell this story. <laughs> the phrase, Man in the Mirror, literally, you guys, I'm telling you, popped off the page. Wow. And I couldn't, and then the words just started coming, and I couldn't write it fast enough. Yeah. I, I was like, yeah, Glenn, hold it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just trying to get, it all, get all these ideas. So finally, like in 10, 12 minutes, we have the first verse and the first chorus of Man in the Mirror. Wow. wow. So <laughs> Glenn amazing. says, it was Wednesday afternoon, and Glenn said, so I'm going to finish the track. You finish the, the lyrics, and on Friday we'll demo the song, which we did. Friday night, I knew that Quest... Publishing was closed until Monday morning. 
Right. So I called Quincy and I said, Q, uh, Glenn and I, I think we got a great song. It could be great for Michael. Yeah. Can't email the MP3 in 1988. Baby, no. <laughs> in fact, what I ended up taking over to his house was a cassette. Nice. So I handed Quincy this cassette. And I said, Q, the only thing I asked, since I didn't want to wait till Monday or Tuesday when you got to the publishing office, just let me know, you know, yeah. just let me know what's going on. So he's like, all right, all right. So he closed the front door and I go home. And a couple hours later, I get a call from Quincy. And he says to me, and I quote, Sid, this is the best song that I've heard in 10 years. Mm. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then I hear, but. <laughs> but, and it was the equivalent of like Charlie Brown's teacher. I didn't really hear shit he was saying. It was just, I just wanted to live in the best right. song 10 years. Just right, let me live right. in that for a few Bask moments. Bask in that glory exactly. for a minute. <laughs> so then he said, you know, Michael, I heard something about we've been in the studio for two and a half years. Michael has yet to record something he didn't write. Uh, and then I hear, but don't worry, Sid. If Michael doesn't record it on his album, I'll do it with James Ingram on my album. And I'm thinking to myself, Michael Jackson, James Ingram. Man, you know, I, I had to have it let it go. You had to just, you had to just let it go because uh, it, would, it would just make you crazy. So yeah. uh, I did that. And a few days later, um, I'm at my house and I get a call from Quincy. And he says to me, um, and I quote, Sid. We in the studio recording your old piece of song. And I'm like, yes! Wow. And then he said, but. And then Charlie Brown's teacher. Yeah, but again. Yeah. Uh, he said, uh, Michael feels like the chorus. Hold on. And I hear. And Quincy said, Michael really feels like the chorus is, is four lines too short, and he really wants you to come up with some, uh, 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 hold on. And then I hear, and, <laughs> and Quincy said, hold, hold on a minute, Sid. And Quincy Jones puts Michael Jackson oh on God. the phone. Wow. Okay, now I don't know about y'all. <laughs> but when I was coming up, Michael was my husband. Okay, you, you, got, you have to understand that. I had cousins whose, whose husbands were Tito and Randy and Jermaine, but Michael was my husband. So in my mind, I'm on the phone with my husband, right? So, but I totally did not want to convey to him everything that was going on inside. So I wasn't going to go, oh my God, Michael Oh my God, I can't believe it. He's on the phone. I can't believe it. so many years. He might have been such a fan. I, I, I wanted to be the complete antithesis right. of that. Play it cool. So I got on the phone and went straight hotel operator. I said, how can I help you? <laughs> the first thing that Michael Jackson said to me was, I love this song. Mm. And I was wow. like, thanks. <laughs> the second thing he said to me was, and I love your voice. Mm. And I'm like, oh, man, wow. that was so great. <laughs> then he starts telling me what he wants this next 
four lines of lyric to say and I don't know, I don't even know where I got the audacity to think this way, but I didn't want Michael to trouble his little head trying to come up with four extra lines. <laughs> so what I did was I came up with six different stanzas hmm. for Michael to choose from. Yeah. Wow. I no longer have the list of the page that all those lyrics were on, but obviously the stanza he chose was, you gotta get it right while you got the time, because when you close your heart, then you close your mind. Almost like speechless. Like I just want to just like hit, you know, shut down. It's such a great. We can story. drop the mic now. <laughs> there, there's so many things that go through my head. One is, you know, when when you're told, hey, you got a chance to write for a Michael Jackson record, that you go home maybe in your mind thinking that's like buying a Powerball ticket. That that's like the oh the hell yeah, because every have. writer in LA, yeah. you know, was was submitting songs to Quincy for this record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I also think about this this title that you kept in your book, Queen of the Universe. <laughs> the, the man in the mirror. Oh yeah, title. yeah, yes. <laughs> or Queen of the Universe. Because <laughs> um, I still hold that title to this day. <laughs> well, cause I, you know, I've I've said this and thought this before that you know some people I think think that when you walk into a songwriting session, the sky just opens up every time, and and pours out beautiful ideas on you, but in some situations you have to collect water. For that day, in case it doesn't rain. And you know, I have never thought that's quite a brilliant analogy. Well, thank you. I, I will, I will take being called brilliant. By <laughs> no, I didn't say you were brilliant. Yeah, she the analogy. Don't get carried away. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a... Rain it in, brother. Yeah. Rain. It in. <laughs> but 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 the fact that you know that's that's part of songwriting is is collecting over time and knowing when to bring something in knowing when something is right because it's not always immediate and that's true that's yeah. true but i like to have choices and mm. every time i hear something or i read something or i see a billboard or i hear a conversation at a cafe or i or I, I overhear a conversation walking down the streets of new york yeah. I, I if if it hits me i write it down yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then just re just while I'm in a songwriting session and I'm listening to music, I just flip through that book. Yeah, you never know when it's yeah. gonna come back or pop out at you and yeah, <laughs> be so clear you can't write fast enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael told you he loved your voice, and obviously he really loved it because the first single yes. was a duet with you. It was. You know how Stop loving you, and I remember even as a kid thinking, "Wow, the first song off this record is a duet." You know, after after Thriller, the biggest record in the history of the universe. Yeah. And he's like, "I want to come out with a duet," and I was like, "This must be someone special that he is singing with here." How did that come together? Well, 
we had recorded the bulk of the song Man in the Mirror. Michael and I did the entire song in a day. And then a few days later, the choir came in and, and recorded the back half of the song. And I didn't, that night when we finished recording, I didn't know that we were finished. I thought we had more recording to do because a couple of days later, Quincy calls me and said, come down to the studio. Uh, we're gonna do work, whatever. Hmm. So I thought we were gonna work on Man in the Mirror. So I come to the studio and in the booth is Quincy, uh, um, Bruce Swedeen, Michael, and me. That's it. So I, I, I go in the studio and I immediately, you know, sit in the back and uh, behind the, the, the booth where Quincy and Michael and, and Bruce were, and I just start knitting, right? You know, because I'm waiting for the knitting, song to come. Like yeah, I'm physically, knitting, okay. physically knitting with <laughs> two needles right. and some yarn, you know, <laughs> just, I'm just knitting. Just, just like you do. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Ask your grandmother, she'll know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm sitting there knitting, waiting for Man in the Mirror to come up on the, on the speakers. So it never did. There was this song, other song playing, so I'm patiently just waiting for you know Quincy to say, okay, now we're gonna work on this. He sort of calls over his shoulder and says, hey Sid, um, you like this song that's playing? And I'm like, yeah, nice, nice song. He said, uh, can you sing it? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so he said, well, go on in there and uh, sing the... So I, I stand up to go and into the vocal booth, and Michael stands up and starts following me. And, and so I'm thinking, okay. And we, I walk into the booth, and there's two music stands, two microphones, two lyric sheets. I see the, the title on one of the music stands and it said, I just can't stop loving you. And then it said, Michael verse, Saida verse, Michael verse. And it was in that instant that I realized, oh my freaking God, I'm singing a duet with the King of Pop. I was just freaking, I, it was, it, everything started to go whoa, 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 right, whoa. Right. It was just slow, right, whoa, whoa. right. So, um, we, we just walked in and just started singing the song. And um, uh, Quincy said, okay. So Michael sings his verse. And I'm looking at him, my husband, <laughs> singing this amazing love song to me, you know, you know <laughs> as he does, you know. And uh, uh, I loved his performance. So now, okay, now, okay, now it's, this, it's my turn. This right. Second verse coming up. So I start... I hear your voice now. And, and I just started to feel this, these things popping on my face. And when I closed my eyes, it would just be a little pop, pop, pop. Michael, when I closed my eyes to give the performance of my life, <laughs> was tossing popcorn in my face <laughs> so that Quincy could see me messing up and wasting studio time. So wow. that to Michael was the most hilarious thing. So there was that. But um, it, was, it was quite uh, an emotional experience and quite an amazing work experience right. for me. Yeah. So awesome. Quincy couldn't have said, uh, by the way, you're going to sing a duet with the biggest artist on no, the planet. No, listen to this. What if I'd said, mm, not really into the song. Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> oh my God. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. You know, not one of my favorites, but yeah, you know, right. it could have been so ugly. Like they already had the lyrics printed up with your yes, name. Yes, with on my it. name on it. But right. I didn't know that. That's oh amazing. my gosh. Oh my.
my god. Um, well, you also wrote a song on Michael's next album, Dangerous, called Keep the Faith. Keep the Faith. Another one that was co-written by you and your and your man in the mirror co-writer Glenn Ballard, but it also included a third writer, which was Michael yes. himself. He didn't want to be left out of this. Right, one. right. <laughs> Talk about in, in what ways kind of adding the artist to the mix uh, affects the writing process. In this case, uh, it only improved it because you know at that point, then Michael would have a stake in having this song on this record, and that could only help Glenn and I. And I remember having a publisher at the time who, when I talked about writing another song for, for this second record of Michael's, she said, yeah, sure, you and every other songwriter in the world. And who has back-to-back songs on a Michael Jackson record site? <laughs> wow. Thanks now for the I encouragement. I do, bitch. I do. But anyway. <laughs> well, and, and Way to believe in your writer. Know, right? <laughs> Way to encourage. Well, and people may not all know this, but um, I mean, that wasn't a record that was that was fully produced by Quincy Jones. I mean, that was Teddy Riley producing a lot of that record. Oh, you know, I didn't really. Yeah, you're right. So it wasn't you're like right. you had an automatic end. You're right. Yeah, yeah. At that point. Completely right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for bringing that worry 30 years Thanks. after. <laughs> Appreciate you. So. Well, you, I mean, you and Michael obviously, you know, forged a relationship. I mean, which began with him throwing popcorn at your face. <laughs> um, and it, but it wasn't one of those situations where you have writers that, you know, some of the writers never even meet the artist. True. You ended up going on tour. I did. <laughs> to sing with him, sing with your husband night after yes. night. Um, See, here's the weird part, though, Paul. Before you go any further, when I realized that he'd invited me to participate as a as a background singer on the Bad Tour, I was ecstatic. But I had a record label who was eager for me to have my own album mm. out and just sort of ride on the coattails of the popularity right. of the duet. And then a month later, the, the, the single Man in the Mirror. So they said, you need to stay home and do your own record. So 10 days into the rehearsal for the bad tour, I pulled Michael to the side and I said, I, I got, you know, Quincy's telling me to... Quincy and Rod Temperton and people at my record label are saying, I really need to make my own record. Hmm. He said, okay. Hmm. You know, like, we'll miss you, bitch, but, you know, bye. <laughs> so uh, I pulled out 10 days into rehearsal. Enter Sheryl Crow. Hmm. And the rest yeah. is her story. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So wow. you gave Cheryl Crow her break indirectly. Yeah, pretty much. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, you know, there's so much been written, said, you know, about Michael Jackson. And, and it's a larger-than-life image. Indeed. What, you know, it's probably a hard thing to even encapsulate, but what about your relationship with him do you appreciate the most? Tuna! No, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. I thought I could do it in one word. I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Go ahead. What you know? What, what do you maybe kind of wish people knew about him? 
that he was really, really funny. Mm-hmm. He had a really childish sense of humor and it didn't really take much to crack him up. And he laughed so easily. And uh, that he was such an absolute perfectionist. Mm. And that he could spin eight complete revolutions <laughs> on his heel. That's incredible. <laughs> Eight. Wow. I can't do one. Right. <laughs> you know, and he and he would spin so fast. It was just unbelievable. Right. At, at the peak of his career, he could wow. spin eight, and it used to freak the the choreographers and the dancers out. Right. They would, it was you. You just shake your head and go, "Oh my God, how does he do that?" Yeah, he was. He was wow. above and beyond. And I not to spend the whole time talking about Michael, but um, I had read something once. I think Bruce Swedeen said that he that he really treated those vocal performances the way he treated stage performances Absolutely. and that he would even be dancing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, you and Glenn Ballard had, had quite a few major artists cutting your songs in the wake of man in the mirror. The pointer sisters recorded uh, shut up and dance. Paula Abdul did state of attraction on her massive selling forever. Your girl album, mm-hmm. uh, Aretha Franklin cut mercy. Mm-hmm. Amy Grant did nobody home a few mm-hmm. years later. And you know, it's when you talk about Michael Jackson, everybody sort of, uh, you know, pales in comparison, but uh, Glenn Ballard is another huge name in the music industry. Of, yes. of course, best known for kind of that Alanis Morissette album that really yes. like made him a, a a huge name. But and her, um, yeah, and her, yeah. and but you know, you and Glenn obviously connected and were working together before uh, either of you were well known to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys actually first start co-writing together, and and what was it about your collaborations that you think worked so well? I used to sing all Glenn's demos. Mm. And I would love uh, singing his demos because I, I really loved his songs. Mm. Yeah. So I really relished the opportunity to go into the little MCA's basement dungeon studio, demo <laughs> studio, and just hear what it was that he'd come up with for me to sing. Yeah. And I, it was just joyous and fun. And we always had a good time during those recordings. And those were very early days when it was all about just having fun making music yeah yeah so you came in respecting him right away completely as a songwriter yeah completely so at some point you said hey glenn you know i I write too or when i no no Uh, when (laughs) when quincy uh said you know we you know we have another slot for one more slot to finish this album you know just see what you i didn't have very many songwriting partners at the time i can't i can't put none of, of of glenn's caliber and since I loved his songwriting, I thought, and he loved my vocal interpretation of his yeah. songs mm. and melodies. So I thought it, it would be, I just tried it. I also wrote a song at the same time with his co-writing partner, Cliff Magnus. Mm. That song was not one of the, there were two songs on the cassette. A song I wrote with Cliff called Innocent Side and a song I wrote with Glenn called Man in the Mirror. Hmm. Well, in 1988, you did release that solo album that everybody wanted you to put out um, mm-hmm. called Kiss of Life. Um, it ended up being the kiss of death, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight is 20. <laughs> well, it did have a top 20 R&B hit, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it can't be all bad. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, you, you're in a different place than, than before with the songs you had put out. Um, you've kind of got a bit more of a track record as a writer. How did that change in terms of the way you selected material? 
At that point, it wasn't up to me. I had very little say in what was going to go on my record. Mm. It was them saying, you're going to record this and this and this and this, and we have to do it now. Yeah. So it was all about an urgency and just uh, recording songs that they already had. And it wasn't really about me as an artist, right. which, you know, it is what it is. But um, I didn't have the time or the, the luxury to sort of you know take my time and picking certain songs for my my next project it was about recording what we have and getting it out there now were you at that point still really really wanting to see that artist thing go really absolutely 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 i wanted to be you know madonna i want to be beyonce whom i didn't even know i want to be beyonce uh yeah 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 because a lot of people would have a, a song like man in the mirror and go oh this I'm going to write for artists now. I'm I'm gonna, you know, keep my slippers on. Well, I, I I still had that yearning to be a recording. I mean, I was getting offers to do TV shows. I got a, an offer to do a, a TV series with Oprah, hmm. and it was either do that for for ten weeks for you know X amount of money or go on tour with Michael Jackson for a year and a half for <laughs> ten times the you know. So it, it was kind of <laughs> right, like right. sorry, Oprah, and you know. Not too many people tell Oprah no, so <laughs> right. uh, she wasn't happy with me after that. So yeah, right. so right. Um, yeah, but uh, you I, told Michael no too. I did, I did, right. but I only told him that once. So I ended up going on the Dangerous tour, and he was really surprised when I told him wow. that I wanted to go. He's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." I said, "I had the most fun I've ever had in my life." Mm. It was. I just. I mean. I, I mean. I said to him before I went on the dangerous tour, my, my friends who were on the bad tour were just, they were calling me from all over the world, Sid, we're in Cork, Ireland, girl, and this song is, you know, they were just telling me all yeah. about how wonderful it was to tour with Michael. Yeah. So I knew if he was going out again, I was, I don't care what Quincy right. or the record label, I was not going to miss the next opportunity to, uh, to go on the road with Michael. And I learned so much. Wow. Yeah. Um, in 1989, Quincy Jones uh, released an album called Back on the Block. Mm -hmm. um, went on to win seven Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year. Um, that's a record that was packed with all of these guest artists, Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, Sarah Vaughn. Um, and you were all over that album as both a performer oh, and a writer. All over that album. All over it. <laughs> um, I think you wrote... Contributed to five songs on that record. You you're singing on that record. I mean, it's and it's such a an interesting. Um, I mean, it's like pulling together all these people. It's like Quincy's career, a snapshot that's, that's of his what he does. of his career. Um, but I'd like to talk about uh, a couple of the songs that you uh, wrote for that project, starting with the number one R and B single, "The Secret Garden," which featured Al B. Sure, James Ingram, Elda Barge, and Barry White. Here in the co-writer on that with Quincy and, and Elder Barge, Rod Temperton, who wrote a little song called Thriller. Yeah, um, that little thing. <laughs> but give us a little insight into that song uh, specifically, and, and then just the whole collaborative atmosphere of that album in general. It was amazing. Every day I look forward to, to going to the studio because you, you never knew who was going to be in there that yeah. day, you yeah. know what I mean? It's a crazy yeah. list. And um, uh, I have a, 
a really funny, uh, I have a few funny stories about that project, but one I'll share with you was um, Quincy and Barry White were uh, in the atrium between the vocal booth and the recording booth. <clears throat> and it was a little breezeway and they were talking and I had to go through the breezeway to go into the to the vocal booth. So Quincy and Barry are talking, and I'm just standing there waiting for a moment to say hi to Barry and then keep it moving. So Barry is talking, and I'm standing between the two of them. And Barry speaking begins to vibrate my rib cage. <laughs> I swear to God, and I said, Mr. White. <laughs> Please excuse me, but I have to move because as you speak, you are inside me right now. <laughs> my organs are all moving around. Baby, he, his voice was so deep, my rib cage wow. was vibrating. It was insane. Insane. That's amazing. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. Um, you know, another song in that uh, Back on the Block record uh, that became a number one R&B hit is Tomorrow, yes. which featured Tevin Campbell. And I understand that was an old instrumental song. Yeah, it was an instrumental from uh, the Brothers Johnson. It was called Tomorrow. Yeah. And so when I added the lyric, uh, the title was changed, Tomorrow, Better You, Better Me. Mm. So, uh, I mean, yeah. how is that? Because you've got a collaborator in the room, in a way, mm -hmm. with the instrumental. But it can't be moved around. No. You have to The melody is set. Exactly. Yeah. But it was I mean, a great melody. So. so was it a challenge? Actually, it's it's a little easier than coming up with my own melody and then then lyrics on top of that. Right. Because um, you know your lane. You know where exactly. You have to stay. I know the I know the syllables. I know when you know, you know structurally. I know where it's going. You know, so it, it's easier for me to write that way yeah. than it is to write yeah. that makes both at the same time. Yeah, the parameters are, very, are well established. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, you joined the Brand New Heavies for their 1997 album, Shelter, and co-wrote a half dozen tracks on that album, including the top 20 R&B hit, Sometimes. Sometimes you gotta do right to be happy. One time you gotta believe in what you feel inside. Sometimes you gotta do right to find happiness. Sometimes, sometimes. Talk about how you ended up joining forces with them and, and as a songwriter, what it was like to come into something that is already an existing dynamic and kind of finding your place as a writer within that. Well, I, I sort of fell into that because it was my job as a songwriter. I was hired to write an equal number of songs with each member of the band. Hmm. So um, over a period of I would go to England every couple of months and um, sing a bunch of demos for the songs that I'd written with the band members. Yeah. And after about six or seven months of going back and forth, they started um, uh, telling me that they're auditioning singers. And so I was writing songs for whoever the singer was going to be. Mm. So after a while, they just said, you know, we're having a lot of trouble trying to find singers that sing your demos better than you do do you want to be in this group? Well, I'm like, sure. So I ended up living <laughs> in London for almost two years and touring with the brand new heavies, which was a, it's a whole nother interview. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I did that for like 16 months and lived there. And the, you know, I'm from sunny Southern California. <laughs> right. Okay. Living in London was really very, very difficult for hmm. me because there was no sun. In right. fact, it was almost a joke. I'd be walking down the street and 
it's cloudy and gray, and then there would be a break in the clouds, and the sun was shining through, and I'm like, oh my God, I opened up my purse and fishing for my sunglasses by the time I got the <laughs> sun gone back to dark. Okay. I see why they stay in the pub. I understand. Right. I understand. Right. Okay. I'm not saying I agree, but I understand. <laughs> um, so that was really, really very, and nobody told me that beautiful South of France was like an hour away. Right. Nobody, nobody bothered to share that with me. Dude. Right. And I'm so geographically ignorant that I didn't figure that out until I was away from England. Yeah, living at home going, at map and yeah, like, and my friends were like, why didn't you just go to Spain? Why didn't you just go to Nice? You know, it was just crazy. I didn't know they were that close. Right. But yeah. A few years after that, in 2003, you released your second album mm. called Saida. Um, and you co-wrote most of the songs on that record, and, and like we've said before, it covered a lot of musical ground, mm -hmm. showed a lot of diversity in your writing. So, you know, we looked back at Kiss of Life record a moment ago. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I mean, do you feel like you learned some things that you applied to the 2003 record? Are, are you happier with it? In yeah, Kiss of Life was not my was not me. It was yeah. you know everybody scrambling to get a song on this girl who just wrote this song with Michael right. Jackson. Yeah, it wasn't about. Um, Figuring out who I was as an artist and what so, I wanted so to say. So naming it Saida was point. It was a, a pointed thing. Absolutely. This is what I would like to put out into yeah. the world, and that's what I did. I, you know, I, I felt a sense of freedom in the fact that I didn't have to write a song that my A and R guy thought he could get on the radio. Right. You know that that was it turned out to be a blessing and a curse, but I felt a sense of accomplishment that I was able to write and record the songs that I wanted to record yes. rather than the ones I was told I had to record because of this, that, and the other. Right. Well, uh, you wrote the lyrics for the song Love You, I Do for the film Dream Girls. Never met a man quite like you Doing all he can Making my dreams come true you're strong and you're smart You've taken my heart And I give you the rest of me too You're the perfect man for me I love you, I do And Jennifer Hudson, of course, performed that in the movie. It went on to get nominated for an Academy Award. It, yes. it won a Grammy in 2008. Um, when you're writing a song like that, you obviously have to capture a very specific vibe and yes. and the era that the film is set in and specifically the the early 1960s for that film um talk about kind of the pros and cons of writing by assignment for something that's specific versus just kind of sitting down and making up a song just without any specific goal in mind it's definitely a, a completely different discipline um with regards to this project i was asked um the director, Bill Condon, was using the original musicians and lyricists from the play, Dreamgirls, to do the score and, and a lot of the music for the film. Right. So the original lyricist um, is a man named Tom Irons, I believe. Uh, he passed away in the 80s. But his composer partner, a man named um, um, Henry Krieger, uh, was still alive, of course, and, and still writing music uh, for musicals. And so he had uh, a meeting, and I was to submit um, an example of my lyrics because they needed a lyricist who could paint 
pictures mm -hmm. with the words and say things in the scene that neither actor mm. could say, but would further the scene along, push the, the, the scene along. So it was my job to write a song that Jennifer Hudson could sing where she could say exactly what she wanted to say to Jamie Foxx's character, but couldn't come out and mm -hmm. say it in her role as this character. Yeah. So when they read my lyrics and they read the lyrics of Man in the Mirror and they could see, you, it was very visual. Uh, pull, up the, pull up the collar on my favorite winter coat. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, they see the kids in the street. You know, it was very, very visual. Yeah. So because my lyrics painted a picture, I was granted this like audition to meet with with um, the director and, and Mr. Krieger. And I remember being very frustrated because I, uh, I was late because the girl in the parking booth sent me to a lot that was two, three <laughs> states away from the <laughs> office that I had to be. So I, I walked in, I was frustrated. I was out of breath, I was late. And, and they were like, okay, just calm down. <laughs> right, you know? right. So I caught my breath and they said, we really like the lyrics and I'd never met Henry Krieger. And, and just from that little interaction, he knew that he liked me and he was right. gonna give me a shot. So I ended up writing, we ended up writing like 20 something versions of the two songs that actually ended up in the film hmm. and um it garnered me my first oscar nomination and a grammy and yeah. you know awesome. i was just so pleased yeah it's yeah. funny to me that somebody would be like hey we'd like to see an example of your lyrics i'm like who doesn't have man in the mirror memorized <laughs> <laughs> me no no here's a photo of a platinum record i'll send you that i think i'll be able to I'll do this, of this wall. Right, just the wall over here with the uh the platinum records that'll do <laughs> Well, in 2011, you received your second Academy Award nomination for writing the lyrics to Real in Rio mm -hmm. from the animated film Rio. You actually contributed several songs to that film. Tell us about that project. The, the, this collaboration came, it was 25 years in the making. Because before I, while I was waiting to see if I was going to be in that group with Quincy Jones, right. I was washing my car in, the, in my front yard at, at this uh, duplex that I lived in. And on the radio, 1580 K-Day, I'll never forget it. Hmm. Sergio Mendez on the radio promoting his new record. And the DJ said, hey, if you want to call, call, talk to Sergio Mendez, call 555, whatever. The, and so I ran in the house, soap still on my car, water hose <laughs> running, ran in the house and started dialing <laughs> the radio song. station. Awesome. I finally got through and I didn't know what I was going to say. And I don't even know what prompted me to think, hey, call and talk to, you know, so the radio, the guy says, the DJ says, 1580K Day, you know, what do you, how can I help? What do you need? Or something like that. I said, uh, is Sergio looking for any singers? He said, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? 
He put Sergio Mendez on the phone. Now, I don't know about you, but Sir- no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So Sergio Mendez got on the phone and he asked me about, you know, had I recorded before? And I just had that record with Renee and Angela. And I knew my mother had a copy and I knew my grandmother had a copy. So Sergio right. said, bring, you know, come over. I'd like to hear what you, what you, what you recorded. And so I took this record from my my mother and I took it to Sergio's house and his wife opened the door and beautiful woman Gracinha and she says calls for Sergio Sergio comes cascading down this magnificent gone with the wind staircase <laughs> with a straw hat a big Cuban cigar a Tommy Bahama shirt and Bermuda tra- Bermuda shorts so he says he was like a presence bigger than life and right. so he took this record that I made and we went into his dining room where he had a, a record player uh, Record player. What am I trying to say? Turntable. Turntable. Thank you so much. <laughs> and he, he picked the record up and dropped it, dropped the needle, picked it up and dropped it two or three times, right? And then he said, mm. it was just like, okay. Mm-hmm. So he left me with his wife who gave me a cassette with three songs to learn in five days. Oh, in Portuguese. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> just thought I'd toss that in. Yeah, so five days later, I came and I uh, auditioned. Guess who the music director was? Hmm. John Beasley. Uh, oh. I first met John, yeah, right? right? So I auditioned. I ended up going on the road with Sergio Mendez. I was oh. in Brazil 88. We went all, all over the world. I was in the Dominican Republic. And then I come back home and do my office job until two or three months later when Sergio would go to Canada. Or so, you know, uh. Sergio toured like, I don't know, I feel like going here this weekend. <laughs> or, you know, I thought that was touring. Right. Oh my God, was I in for a rude, <laughs> rude awakening. Right. Um, so anyway, 25 years later, Sergio was working on this thing this movie, and it was all in Portuguese. And so the, the record label says, well, we really need to put some English lyrics to, so we can release the movie worldwide and not just in Brazil, right? Yeah. So my job as a songwriter, since they'd already recorded the song in Portuguese, it was my job as a songwriter to come up with English lyrics wow. that sounded like the Portuguese hmm. lyrics that had already been recorded. Yeah. So I busy myself going, you know, trying to do that. And I ter- remember turning the song in and oh, well, the, one of the music supervisors said, the lyric was, because it sounded like what was going on Portuguese wise underneath, the lyric was, all the birds of a feather coo through the damp of the morn. Wow. And the guy said, Saida, damp of the morn. Like, couldn't you say the morning dew? Or, you know, yeah. And, and then the, the, um, um, the music supervisor said, and the composer for the record said, well, he's English. So he said, in Saida's defense, her job was to find English lyrics that sounded like the Portuguese we'd already recorded. <laughs> and when he said that, it was in that moment that the record company guy realized how fucking brilliant <laughs> I truly am. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and at that point he said, oh, 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. In that case. Yeah, yeah. But I ended up changing because he did have a point. And then they then they said, well, don't worry, we're going to re-record it in English, so don't worry about the Portuguese right. underneath. But that was one of those moments that, you know, right. I will never forget. But... Um, if I'd been an a-hole to Sergio Mendez, <laughs> no way would he be thinking yeah. of hiring me 25 yeah. years later. Right. So right. it's all about the relationships that you build and um, the feelings that you leave with people because mm. that's what they don't forget. And, yeah. and when your name comes up in conversation and instead of going, him going, oh, no, I will never work <laughs> with her. He's like, yeah, let's, let's bring her in. Right. It was just so, it was one of the most natural progressions yeah. for me and yeah. i love sergio and his wife to life yeah yeah you know amazing i mean i would think that when your name comes up now it's like oh we have something that looks impossible let's call up saida yeah. <laughs> right. wanna... will you spread that around <laughs> i was gonna say you know the idea of writing to the existing brothers johnson track to me sounded like a challenge until mm. you mentioned trying to write songs that sound like portuguese but make english sense in english lyrics that sound now like the that, portuguese that we've already recorded that is the challenge <laughs> yeah, yeah. amazing yeah um well one last question for you um you have generously lent your talent to a number of important causes, including writing the theme songs for both the 2007 and 2015 Special Olympics World Games, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, projects to benefit uh, American Idol Gives Back, um, Autism Awareness, yes. uh, Race to Erase MS, yes. the Minority AIDS Foundation. We could we could do a whole other interview the on and on about all Dolly. the different things that you've You've done, but talk about kind of the intersection of, of art and activism and in what ways you've tried to use your own gifts to, to give back, so to speak. Well, I don't have billions of dollars to give away to help. I don't have a lot of property where I can have other people use my property and, you know, to benefit. All I have is my gift of song. Mm. So that's pretty much what I have to lend to whatever project that I want to support. Yeah. And um, sometimes it works very well. And sometimes it's just me saying, I support this. Yeah. You know, um, I, since I've been given so much, I have no excuse not to give back. Yeah. So, you know. Well, and this, this concept of artists and writers lending their talent to something bigger than themselves, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a historical kind of building block of, of art and community, yes. you know, all the way back to some of the, you know, folk musicians, and then through the, the 60s, yes, and, yes. And, and the war. Protest music, man, I, yeah. I, so I'm curious, what is your opinion on where are the artists right now? They're busy hanging out in the strip clubs. <laughs> They're busy making it rain. Because um, there's a lot to be said right now. I wrote this song recently called The New Frontier for a, a well-established recording artist who, um, he recorded the demo and recorded the song for the record, but the, the song didn't make the album. But I thought that this song was really <clears throat> important because... There was a lot of stuff going on last year. Um, it was how the um, Black Lives Matter movement began, the, the Trayvon Martin thing, the, the uh, Freddie Gray. It, it was just a lot going on, and right. I, I I felt I needed to to say something about it. Right. Um, as a songwriter, it's it's for me mm -hmm. to shine a light on on issues that I feel are are 
things that are being done in the dark. I want to just shine a light on certain things and pull focus uh, for us to to move our attention to fix certain things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I I so believe in the song that I now perform it uh, live and have had amazing and ridiculously positive responses to um, that song when I perform it live. Well, Saida, this has been a real pleasure for us and just an honor. We thank you for welcoming us into your home and, so and sharing your, your stories. It's been rather painless. I appreciate rather that. Rather painless. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is great. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters.